Section 2 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 1. Self-Help. National and individual part one quote, the worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it unquote. by john stuart mill quote, we put too much faith in systems and look too little to men unquote. be disraeli quote, heaven helps those who help themselves unquote is a well-tried maxim, embodying in a small compass the results of vast human experience. The spirit of self-help is the root of all genuine growth in the individual and exhibited in the lives of many. It constitutes the true source of national vigor and strength. Help from without is often enfeebling in its effects, but help from within invariably invigorates. Whatever is done for men or classes to a certain extent takes away the stimulus and necessity of doing for themselves and where men are subjected to overguidance and overgovernment the inevitable tendency is to render them comparatively helpless even the best institutions can give a man no active help perhaps the most they can do is to leave him free to develop himself and improve his individual condition but in all times men have been prone to believe that their happiness and well-being were to be secured by means of institutions rather than by their own conduct hence the value of legislation as an agent in human advancement has usually been much overestimated to constitute the millionth part of a legislature by voting for one or two men once in three or five years however Conscientiously, this duty may be performed, but little active influence upon any man's life and character. Moreover, it is every day becoming more clearly understood that the function of government is negative and restrictive, rather than positive and active, being resolvably principally into protection, protection of life, liberty, and property, laws wisely administered, will secure men in the enjoyment of the fruits of their labor, whether of mind or body, at a comparatively small personal sacrifice, but no laws, however stringent, can make the idle industrious, the thriftless provident, or the drunken sober. Such reforms can only be effected by means of individual action, economy and self-denial by better habits rather than by greater rights the government of a nation is usually found to be but the reflex of the individuals composing it the government that is ahead of the people will be inevitably dragged down to their level as the government that is behind them will in the long run be dragged up in the order of nature the collective character of a nation will as surely find its befitting results in its law and government as water finds its own level the noble people will be nobly ruled and the ignorant and corrupt ignobly 
indeed all experiences serves to prove that the worth and strength of a state depend far less upon the form of its institutions than upon the character of its men for the nation is only an aggregate of individual conditions and civilization itself is but a question of the personal improvement of the men women and children of whom society is composed national progress is the sum of individual industry energy and uprightness is national decays of individual idleness selfishness and vice what we are accustomed to decry is great social evils will for the most part be found to be but the outgrowth of man's own perverted life and though we may endeavor to cut them down and extirpate them by means of law they will only spring up again with fresh luxuriance in some other form unless conditions of personal life and character are radically improved if this view be correct then it follows that the highest patriotism and philanthropy consist not so much in altering laws and modifying institutions as in helping and stimulating men to elevate and improve themselves by their own free and independent individual action it may be of comparatively little consequence how a man is governed from without whilst everything depends upon how he governs himself from within the greatest slave is not he who is ruled by a despot great though that evil be but he who is the thrall of his own moral ignorance selfishness and vice nations who are thus enslaved at heart cannot be freed by any mere changes of masters or of institutions and so long as a fatal delusion prevails that liberty solely depends upon and consists in government so long will such changes no matter at what cost they may be effected have as little practical and lasting result as the shifting of the figures in a phantasmed majoria the solid foundations of liberty must rest upon individual character which is also the only sure guarantee for social security and national progress john stuart mill truly observes that quote, even despotism does not produce its worst effects so long as individuality exists under it and whatever crosses individuality is despotism by whatever name it be called unquote old fallacies as to human progress are constantly turning up some call for caesars others for nationalities and others for acts of parliament we are to wait for caesars and when they are found quote, happy the people who recognize and follow them unquote. this doctrine shortly means everything for the people nothing by them a doctrine which if taken as a guide must by destroying the free conscience of a community speedily prepare the way for any form of despotism caesarism is human idolatry in its worst form a worship of mere power as degrading in its effects as the worship of mere wealth would be a far healthier doctrine to inculcate among the nations would be that of self-help and so soon as it is thoroughly understood and carried into action caesarism will be no more the two principles are directly antagonistic and what victor hugo said of the pen and the sword alike applies to them 
Say say to our Sena. This will kill that. The power of nationalities and acts of parliament is also a prevalent superstition. What William Dargan, one of Ireland's truest patriots, said at the closing of the first Dublin industrial expedition may be well quoted now. Quote, to tell the truth, he said, I never heard the word independence mentioned that my own country and my own fellow townsmen did not occur to my mind. I have heard a great deal about the independence that we were to get from this, that in the other place, and of the great expectations we were to have from persons from other countries coming amongst us. Whilst I value as much as any man the great advantages that must result from to us from that intercourse, I have always been deeply impressed with the feeling that our industrial independence is dependent upon ourselves. I believe that with simple industry and careful exactness in the utilization of our energies we never had a fairer chance nor a brighter prospect than the present we have made a step but perseverance is the great agent of success and if we but go on zealously i believe in my conscience that in a short period we shall arrive at a position of equal comfort, of equal happiness, and of equal independence with that of any other people." Unquote. All nations have been made what they are by the thinking and the working of many generations of men. Patient and preserving laborers in all ranks and conditions of life, cultivators of the soil and explorers of the mine, inventors and discoverers, manufacturers, mechanics, and artisans, poets, philosophers, and politicians, all have contributed towards the grand result, one generation building upon another's labors and carrying them forward to still higher stages. This constant succession of noble workers, the artisans of civilization, has served to create order out of chaos in industry, science, and art, and the living race has thus, in the course of nature, become the inheritor of the rich estate provided by the skill and industry of our forefathers, which is placed in our hands to cultivate and to hand down not only unimpaired but improved to our successors the spirit of self-help as exhibited in the energetic action of individuals has in all times been a marked feature in the english character and furnishes the true measure of our power as a nation rising above the heads of the mass there were always to be found a series of individuals distinguished beyond others who commanded their public homage but our progress has also been owing to multitudes of smaller and less known men though only the generals names may be remembered in the history of any great campaign it has been in a great measure through the individual valor and heroism of the privates that victories have been won and life too is a quote, a soldier's battle unquote. men in the ranks having in all times been amongst the greatest of workers many are the lives of men unwritten which have nevertheless as powerfully influenced civilization and progress as the more fortunate great whose names are recorded in biography even the humblest person who sets before his fellows an example of industry sobriety and upright honesty of purpose in life has a present as well as a future influence upon the well-being of his country for his life and character pass unconsciously 
into the lives of others and propagate good example for all time to come. Daily experience shows that it is energetic individualism which produces the most powerful effects upon the life and action of others and really constitutes the best practical education. Schools, academies, and colleges give but the merest beginnings of culture in comparison with it. Far more influential is the life education daily given in our homes, in the streets, behind counters, and workshops at the loom and the plow, in counting houses and manufactories, and in the busy haunts of men. This is that finishing instruction as members of society, which Schiller designated, quote, the education of the human race, unquote, consisting in action, conduct, self-culture, self-control, all that tends to discipline a man, truly inviting for the proper performance of the duties and business of life, a kind of education not to be learned from books or acquired by any amount of mere literary training. With his usual weight of words, Bacon observes that, quote, Studies teach not their own use, but that is a wisdom without them, and above them, one by observation, unquote. A remark that holds true of actual life, as well as the cultivation of the intellect itself. For all experiences serve to illustrate and enforce the lesson that a man perfects himself by work more than by reading, that it is life rather than literature, action rather than study, and character rather than biography, which tend perpetually to renovate mankind. Biographies of great, but especially of good men, are nevertheless most instructive and useful, as hopes, guides, and incentives to others. Some of the best are almost equivalent to Gospels, teaching high living, high thinking, and energetic action for their own and the world's good. The valuable examples which they furnish of the power of self-help, of patient purpose, resolute working, and steadfast integrity, issuing in the formation of truly noble and manly character, exhibit in language not to be misunderstood, what is in the power of each to accomplish for himself, and eloquently illustrate the efficacy of self-respect and self-reliance in enabling men of even the humblest rank to work out for themselves an honorable competency and solid reputation. Great men of science, literature, and art, apostles of great thoughts and lords of the great heart, have belonged to no exclusive class nor rank in life. They have come alike from colleges, workshops, and farmhouses, from the huts of poor men and the mansions of the rich. Some of God's greatest apostles have come from, quote, the ranks, unquote. The poorest have sometimes taken the highest places, nor have difficulties, apparently, the most insuperable proved obstacles in their way. These very difficulties, in many instances, whatever seemed to have been their best helpers by invoking their powers of labor and endurance and stimulating into life faculties which might otherwise have lain dormant. The instances of obstacles thus surmounted and of triumphs thus achieved are indeed so numerous as almost to justify the proverb that 
quote, with will one can do anything, unquote. Take, for instance, the remarkable fact that from the barber shop came Jeremy Taylor, the most poetical of divines, Sir Richard Arkwright, the inventor of the spinning jenny, and the founder of the cotton manufacturer, Lord Tenterden, one of the most distinguished of Lord Chief Justices, and Turner, the greatest among landscape painters. No one knows to certainty what Shakespeare was, but it is unquestionable that he sprang from a humble rank. His father was a butcher in Gorzier, and Shakespeare himself is supposed to have been in early life a woolcomber whilst others aver that he was an usher in a school and afterwards a shrivener's clerk he truly seems to have been quote, not one but all mankind's epitome unquote. for such is the accuracy of his sea phrases that a naval writer alleges that he must have been a sailor whilst a clergyman infers from internal evidence in his writings that he was probably a parson's clerk and a distinguished judge of horseflesh insists then he must have been a horse-dealer. Shakespeare was certainly an actor, and in the course of his life, quote, played many parts, unquote. Gathering his wonderful stores of knowledge from a wide field of experience and observation, in any event he must have been a close student and a hard worker, and to this day his writings continue to exercise a powerful influence on the formation of English character. The common class of day laborers has given us Brindley the engineer, Cook the navigator, and Burns the poet. Masons and bricklayers can boast of Ben Johnson, who worked at the building of Lincoln's Inn, with a trowel in his hand and a book in his pocket, Edwards and Telford the engineers, Hugh Miller the geologist, and Alan Cunningham the writer and sculptor, whilst among distinguished carpenters we find the names of Indio Ignigo Jones the architect, Harrison the chronometer maker, John Hunter the physiologist, Romney and Opie the painters, Professor Lee the orientalist, and John Gibson the sculptor. From the weaver class have sprung Simpson the mathematician, Bacon the sculptor, the two milliners, Adam Walker, John Foster, Wilson the ornithologist, Dr. Livingstone the missionary traveler, and Tannehill the poet. Shoemakers have given us Sir Cloudsley Shovel, the great admiral, Sturgeon the electrician, Samuel Drew the essayist, Gifford the editor of the Quarterly Review, Bloomfield the poet, and William Carey the missionary, whilst Morrison, another laborious missionary, was a maker of shoe lasts. Within the last few years, a profound naturalist has been discovered in the person of a shoemaker at Banff, named Thomas Edwards, who, whilst maintaining himself by his trade, has devoted his leisure to the study of natural science in all its branches. His researches in connection with the small crustae have been rewarded by the discovery of a new species to which the name Prendiza Edwardsi has been given by naturalists nor have tailors been undistinguished john stowe the historian worked at the trade during some part of his life jackson the painter made clothes until he reached manhood the brave sir john hawkswood who 
so greatly distinguished himself at Poitiers, and was knighted by Edward the Third for his valour, was in early life apprenticed to a London tailor, Admiral Hobson, who broke the boom at Vigo, in seventeen o two, belonged to the same calling. He was working as a tailor's apprentice near Bonchurch in the Isle of Wight when the news flew through the village that a squadron of men-of-war was sailing off the island he sprang from the shopboard and ran down with his comrades to the beach to gaze upon the glorious sight the boy was suddenly inflamed with the ambition to be a sailor and springing into a boat he rowed off to the squadron gained the admiral's ship and was accepted as a volunteer years after he returned to his native village full of honours and dined off bacon and eggs in the cottage where he had worked as an apprentice but the greatest tailor of all is unquestionably andrew johnson the present president of the united states a man of extraordinary force and character and vigor of intellect in his great speech at washington when describing himself as having begun his political career as an alderman and run through all the branches of the legislature a voice in the crowd cried quote, from a tailor up unquote. it was characteristic of johnson to take the intended sarcasm in good part and even to turn it to account quote, some gentleman says i have been a tailor that does not disconcert me in the least for when i was a tailor i had the reputation of being a good one i make in close fits i was always punctual with my customers and always did good work unquote. cardinal wolsey defoe ackinside and kirk white were the sons of butchers bunyan was a tinkerer and joseph lancaster a basket maker among the great names identified with the invention of the steam engine are those of newcomen watt and stevenson the first a blacksmith the second a maker of mathematical instruments and the third an engine fireman huntingdon the preacher was originally a coal heaver and bewick the father of wood engraving a coal miner dodsley was a footman and holcraft a groom baffin the navigator began a seafaring career as a man before the mast and sir cloudsley shovel as a cabin boy herschel played the oboe in a military band chantry was a journeyman carver etty a journeyman printer and sir thomas lawrence the son of a tavern keeper michael faraday the son of a blacksmith was in early life apprenticed to a bookbinder and worked that trade until he reached his twenty-second year he now occupies the very first rank as a philosopher excelling even his master sir humphrey davy in the art of lucidly expounding the most difficult and abstruse points in natural science among those who have given the greatest impulse to the sublime science of astronomy we find copernicus the son of a polish baker kepler the son of a german public housekeeper and himself the garçon de cabaret de alembelt a foundling picked up one winter's night on the steps of the church of saint jean le ronde at paris and brought up by the wife of a glazier and newton and laplace the one the son of a small freeholder near grantham the other the son of a poor peasant of beaumont en near honfleur
notwithstanding their comparatively adverse circumstances in early life these distinguished men achieved a solid and enduring reputation by the exercise of their genius which all the wealth in the world could have not purchased the very possession of wealth might indeed have proved an obstacle greater even than the humble means to which they were born the father of lagrange the astronomer and mathematician held the office of the treasurer of war at turin but having ruined himself by speculations his family were reduced to comparative poverty to the circumstance lagrange was in afterlife accustomed partly to attribute his own fame and happiness quote, had i been rich said he i should probably not have become a mathematician Unquote. the sons of clergymen and ministers of religion generally have particularly distinguished themselves in our country's history amongst them we find the names of drake and nelson celebrated in naval heroism of wollaston young playfair and bell in science of wren reynolds wilkson and wilkie in art of thurlow and campbell in law and of addison thompson goldsmith coleridge and tennyson in literature lord harding colonel edwards and major hodson so honorably known in indian warfare were also the sons of clergymen indeed the empire of england in india was won and held chiefly by men of the middle class such as clive warren hastings and their successors men for the most part bred in factories and trained to habits of business among the sons of attorneys we find edmund burke smeaton the engineer scott and wordsworth and lord somers hardwick and dunning sir william blackstone was the posthumous son of a silk mercer lord gifford's father was a grocer at dover lord denman's a physician judge chalford's a country brewer and lord chief baron pollux a celebrated saddler at charing cross layard the discoverer of the monuments of Nineveh was an articled clerk in a London solicitor's office, and Sir William Armstrong, the inventor of hydraulic machinery and of the Armstrong Ordinance, were also trained to the law and practised for some time as an attorney. Milton was the son of a London Shriner, and Pope and Southey were the sons of linen drapers. Professor Wilson was the son of a Paisley manufacturer and lord macaulay of an african merchant keats was a druggist and sir humphrey davy a country apothecary's apprentice speaking of himself davy once said quote, what i am i have made myself i say this without vanity and in pure simplicity of the heart unquote. richard owen the newton of natural history began life as a midshipman and did not enter upon the line of scientific research in which he has become so distinguished until comparatively late in life he laid the foundations of his great knowledge which occupied in cataloguing the magnificent museum accumulated by the industry of john hunter a work which occupied him at the college of surgeons during a period of about ten years foreign not less than english biography abounds in illustrations of men who have glorified the lot of poverty by their labors and genius in art we find claude 
the son of a pastry cook, Jeeves of a baker, Leopold Robert of a watchmaker, and Haydn of a wheelwright, whilst Daguerre was a scene painter at the opera. The father of Gregory the seventh was a carpenter, of Sexus the fifth, a shepherd, and of Adrian the sixth, a poor bargeman. When a boy, Adrian, unable to pay for a light by which to study, was accustomed to prepare his lessons by the light of the lamps and the streets and the church porches, exhibiting a degree of patience and industry, which were the certain forerunners of his future distinction. Of like humble origin were Hay, the mineralogist, who was the son of a weaver of St. Just, Haute Foulet, the mechanician, of a baker at Orleans, Joseph Fourier, the mathematician of a tailor at of Auxerre, Durand, the architect of a Paris shoemaker and Gesner, the naturalist of a skinner or a worker in hides at Zurich. This last began his career under all the disadvantages attendant on poverty, sickness, and domestic calamity, none of which, however, were sufficient to damp his courage or hinder his progress. His life was indeed an eminent illustration of the truth of the saying that those who have most to do and are willing to work will find the most time. Pierre Ramus was another man of like character he was a son of poor parents in picardy and when a boy was employed to tend sheep but not liking the occupation he ran away to paris after encountering much misery he succeeded in entering the college of Navarre as a servant the situation however opened for him the road to learning and he shortly became one of the most distinguished men of his time end of section two recorded by meg ferry 252